Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. Our first lesson today comes from the Exodus, starting in the third chapter, beginning with the first verse. This is the call to Moses. Listen now to the Word of God. And then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. And let me start at the beginning. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his rock, led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. And he looked, and the bush was blazing, and yet it was not consumed. And then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the brush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I invite you to stand as you are able in body and in spirit, that we may hear a reading from Scripture from the New Testament in the book of Acts in the second chapter. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound the crowd gathered, and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are these not who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Eliamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Figria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. We are all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, 
What does this mean? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Today is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all of you who are. And give thank, we give thanks for those who have functioned in our lives as fathers. A year ago, on this occasion, I was given this journal by one of my sons and his fiancée. So a year later, the journal is almost full. I only have a very few pages left to noodle and doodle in it. And since that time, a wedding has occurred. And I am now not only a father, but I am a father-in-law. Vicki used to joke in our family that even the dogs were male. So it is good to receive a daughter-in-law in the family. And we rejoice with that. <coughs> On the second page of the journal, there is a note that I scribbled to myself I had received a phone, a phone message that I hadn't answered from someone named Scott Bryan in Columbus, Georgia. And so I had doodled the note, call Scott, and I did, and I'm here. A lot has happened in a year. I've used this journal as a way of keeping tracks of the things that I need to do. Sometimes I, I make lists. Um, sometimes I just jot down thoughts. I've begun some sermons here. I've begun some letters here. I frequently write out things that are troubling me or that I think are good to celebrate as well. I use this this journal uh, to, to put together two of Paul's verses from the letter to the Philippians. I use this journal as a way to gain clarity and seek the peace that passes understanding while I am working out my own salvation. And it's a good thing to do. It's a good practice. It's a way of um, living into, for me, it's a way of living into realizing that all my thoughts, all my breaths have some component and connection with God. We breathe and we pray even as we breathe. One of the things that I have been thinking about lately is what does it mean to be a a person in this world? What does it mean to be a father or a mother or a child in this world that we live in? You see, a year ago this past week, there was a horrible event in Charleston, South Carolina, where nine people were killed at Emmanuel AME Zion Church. And just this past Sunday, while we were gathered in this room, in Orlando was unfolding a horror of of proportions that staggers the imagination with the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub. I've journaled about some of those things and scribbled them down. I don't have any answers necessarily, but I've struggled, as I would imagine all of us have, to try to come to terms and understanding of what this means. Both of these events are in Charleston and Orlando are, are tragic. 
they, they challenge the very limits of what we understand, and they prompt us to maybe even say things that we were not sure we ever could say. My friend and colleague, Glenn Bell, who is pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Sarasota, Florida, and also by happenstance, unbeknownst to me when I came here, a friend of, of Jones as well, but Glenn wrote an, an article that appeared in the local Sarasota paper, Sarasota being not that far from Orlando and there being some overlap in the, the universe that was there. And he wrote, life is precious. Simple declarative sentence, life is precious. This is the problem we have forgotten. Life is precious, every life. How is it that we find our way in the world as fathers, for those of us who are fathers, as, as mothers, as siblings, as children, as adults, in any role that we have, how do we find our way when there is such horror that we confront. Today, we are concluding the sermon series on symbols and the seal. The seal of the Presbyterian Church has a number of symbols that we have looked at over the past week. The front of your bulletin has the symbol this week, the fire. Previously, we've looked at the, the cup and the, the Word, the Bible, and the pulpit and the cross, all of those are there. And even there's some more that are, that are there as well. But today we conclude that, and we conclude it with talking about the fire, which is why I shared with the children the Christ candle, because the Christ candle is a flame. It is part of a fire. And we listen to Scripture that speaks of fire. The Scripture from Exodus where God speaks out of a bush that is burning and yet is not burned up. And from that place, God speaks and calls Moses into action to lead his children out of bondage. And then from the New Testament, how fire descended as tongues, as tongues of fire, and it touched the, the disciples and the whole community, the group that had been following Jesus, and yet after Jesus' death and his, his resurrection and his ministry and then his ascension, they weren't sure what they were supposed to do. They were waiting. They were waiting. And then as they waited, those tongues as a fire touched them, and they went out and proclaimed, and, and the crowd was completely baffled. How is it? that these people are doing this, we do not understand. There are a variety of other accounts of fire in the Bible. In Genesis 19, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone for their actions. Jesus described in Matthew 13 how the grass that, that had been cut and the, the, the refuse of that 
would be gathered up and thrown into a fire and burned. The fire covers Mount Sinai as Moses ascends to it and receives the book of the laws in Exodus 19. Fire is a symbol that is there. I want to emphasize today, though, that fire is a symbol for God's power and God's rule, what we sometimes call the sovereignty of God, and how we are called from that fire, as Moses was. The bush that stood before Moses that was burning was, but was not burned up is a symbol. It is a symbol of God's passion and God's intensity. And yet, by not being consumed in fire, that bush is also a symbol of God's mercy and God's grace and God's hope that we might have. How? How is that possible? How can a bush burn and not be burned up? How can we listen to that dynamic reality, that dynamic power? There is a way in which we can see this as a revelation of God. Sometimes these things are called theophanies in, re in religious language. God appears in a visible way so people can see what God is doing. The fire burns, but the bush remains. That speaks to God's passion and God's gentleness. The image is pretty awesome when you think about it. In various ways, in various places throughout Scripture, God is described as awesome and awe-inspiring. In the Psalms, in Psalm 47, the psalmist wrote, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to joy to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is awesome, a great king over all the earth. Shout, shout, clap your hands. Daniel prayed as he was preparing for his travail. Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, you keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. In the midst of that travail, as Daniel faced uncertainty, he called out to this awesome God. There was a praise song that was written 20 years or so ago entitled Awesome God. You may have heard it. It pulses and pounds with the the. the music of that period, and yet it shares judgment and grace. The, one of the verses, or the chorus goes, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And if you're familiar with it, you know there are some verses that go with it, and they may be sung over and over again with that pounding message of judgment and grace. John Mulder, a Presbyterian minister and theologian, has suggested that our Presbyterian tradition handles the mystery of the burning bush much like a, a fugue, a musical fugue, which is a piece of music Bach helped make famous. There are two or more voices that surround you and envelop you, and it, it pulsates, and 
it provides a level of complexity and layering that are uh, that is both challenging and as well as intriguing as you as well the westminster confession one of our church confessions speaks to this and i'm going to read it and ask that you listen for the layers of it god add all life goodness and blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do them, by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, and obedience he is pleased to require of them. My reading may not have been that musical, but I hope you heard in it the layers, the use of all the different clauses and prepositions that layered upon each other, a complexity and a, a power that, that is unbelievable. The, the, the rule of God, the sovereignty of God is meant to help provide confidence. It is meant to help us understand that God is in charge. Now, every theological statement that, that has ever been made has been made in a time of some sort of conflict and, and as a response to that sort of challenge. But often we listen to these words as if we are the very, very first people to hear them, but we are not. We are simply the inheritors of generations who have gone before us, and there will be generations who come after us. We live in a time so that we receive these and we listen to them. Consider the Westminster Confession, the work from the, the document I just read. That document, as I have shared with you before, came from a time when England was undergoing a civil war there was a political revolution going on, literally a political revolution. King Charles I, the monarch, the sovereign, the ruler, the one who said he was the whole power of all, he was arrested and tried for treason. How dare commoners judge the king? He was arrested and he was tried for treason. He was found guilty and he was beheaded. He was killed. Where is the source of stability in society if the one to whom you look for authority and power is taken away, is taken out, is removed? It's a pretty unsettling image. And maybe in our own way, one that we can relate to in our own time. 
Our faith tradition affirms that no matter what happens in the realm of government, what happens in the world, God, God is in charge. And how do we deal with that? Once after I used this example, someone came up to me and said, what do you mean when you say God is in charge? And I could tell from the way the question was posed that there was pain in the, in the asking. There was tragedy. I must admit that on more than one occasion in my own life, not simply as a pastor, but as a person, I have cried out to God, why? Why do children contract diseases from which there doesn't seem to be a cure? Why do people die in car wrecks through no fault of their own? Why do people gather up weapons and take them into public places and commit murder and mayhem? Why? There are lots of books and articles and videos that you can find that speak to and provide, seek to provide an answer to that question, how is God in charge? Some quote Scripture, and Scripture can be helpful. It can help us orient ourselves. But something else is required. Something deeper is required. We must engage the reality we live in not only at a surface level, not only at a visceral level of our own emotional response. We must be willing to look and to confront pain and ugliness and darkness in others, and to be completely honest, we must be able to look at the pain and the ugliness and darkness in ourselves. When confronted with the damage and the pain in the world, the killing and death that screams to us, that has, people have said has been done in the name of something holy, makes us shake our heads and wonder. How is it that life is precious in the midst of all of this? There's an old line that goes, when someone comes to you and says something like, I don't believe in God anymore, you may open a conversation with them by saying, tell me about the God you do not believe in. I might not believe in that God either. A number of years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small, and he said, when we think of God as simply the law enforcement, or when we think of God as the old man who sits on the throne with the big, long, gray beard and looks down on us, when we look, think of God in those ways, then we may come into places where the, that God is too small, and we need to let God out of the box that we have attempted put God in. The sovereignty of God is the voice that calls out to Moses, you're on holy ground. And then later on in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, there's this conversation. Moses says, I don't even know your name. Who are you? How can I go? I've run away. Moses, you may recall, was someone who had committed murder himself, and he had fled into exile. And there he was being told he was to be the one to deliver the children of Israel. 
we work out what that means. We work out trying to struggle with that. John Mulder puts it this way in summarizing it. He says, God calls us. God establishes a covenant with us. God saves us. We do not save ourselves. God promises to be with us. God charges us with special responsibilities for the fulfillment of God's divine purpose. The symbol of fire that we use on our seal, the fire that is part of the Christ candle, is a symbol of that call. It is a way for us to think of seeing that as we listen to the world that is around us, as we abide in Scripture, as we confront within ourselves where we are, not simply where we are staying, but where we need to be going as well. Often in our lives, we begin to wonder how this all could happen. John Wesley was already on his way to being a religious person, a priest in the Church of England, and one night he went to a meeting and at that meeting, the, there was a reading of, of a spiritual writing. In this case, it was Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And as the leader was reading, not, not what Luther wrote about commentary, but the introduction of it, you know, the stuff that people always skip. As Wesley heard what was being read in the introduction, he says, my heart was strangely warmed. And from that experience, from that strange warming of his heart, Wesley developed a missionary zeal to share God's love through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in whatever way he could. And he traveled the length and breadth of the United Kingdom, and he traveled even to the American colonies to share that power. And it came during a time of listening to what we might think of as an inconsequential piece of writing. Yet God lit the fire at that particular moment. The image of the bush that burns while not being consumed is a counter to the confusion of the world. It is, a, it is a way for us to think about those eternal flames that we know about. There is a flame that burns always at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. There is a flame at John F. Kennedy's grave at the Arlington National Cemetery, and there's one at Martin Luther King's memorial in Atlanta. There's one at Yad Vashem Memorial in, um, in Israel is in memory to the victims of the Holocaust. These flames are described as being eternal. They never go out. But we know, we know that they must be continually fed with fuel, that their wicks must continually be trimmed. So they never go out, but they are, there's constant tending to them. When we leave this room today, the Christ candle will be extinguished, but the light will never go out. 
the light will never go out because we will continue to tend to the things that fuel it symbolically, but also within our own hearts and souls. That is the power of the flame that burns but does not consume. God does provide for us, even in difficulty and uncertain times, we find that provision in our trust. Will things always work out as we think? I would guess not. But what that does mean is that God's presence is with us. Our challenges, our life is learning that God's rule is not always our rule. Every life is precious. Every life is precious. For God has created the light that was at the center of the world. As we ponder the flame of God's Spirit, may we find God's calling to us in Jesus, God's gift to us in Jesus, and may we be bearers of that light in all of our relationships, in all that we do. Thanks be to God. Amen.